All right, yeah. Uh, today we're going to be looking at a, a passage that probably doesn't get covered a whole lot. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, verses one through eight. If you want to, uh, if you want to have your Bible ready, First Corinthians chapter six, and uh, we're, we're also going to share communion today. So. Um, Hopefully you've got some uh, bread and some cups at your table. Um, I think we've got some extra back there by Pastor Mark, right? So, um, and if you're at home, uh, it's it's the important thing is to have something that helps you to remember the body and blood of Jesus. What's not as important is the uh, the the exact material that you use. So I encourage you. Uh, go grab something. If you're listening to this as part of the live stream or afterward, be a part of that process of remembering Jesus by grabbing something, uh, something to bite, something to drink. Um, we're in a series called Things Are Going to Be Different. We know that things are changing in the world at uh, an exponentially increasing rate. We know things are going to be different in the world. We know that for followers of Jesus, things are going to be different. There's a transformation that he wants to do in our lives. So we know the lives of disciples of Jesus are to be different. So things are going to be different in the church because the way we've done things as a church hasn't always led to life transformation. I'm, uh, uh, I've been involved in church planting in, in a lot of ways, you know, starting planting this church in, in 2006. I've coached church planters. We've had church planting interns. I've been an assessor at a church planting assessment center. And w- one of the interesting things as you start to get into that world of starting up new churches and I remember somebody pointing this out to me and, and realizing, while wow, they're absolutely right, and that's absolutely disturbing. We know enough about how to gather a crowd and how to raise funds that somebody could start what we would consider a successful church based on budget, based on attendance. Uh, and they wouldn't even have to be a Christian. We just know enough about how to gather a crowd and how to motivate people that you wouldn't even have to pray in order to start a a new church in in our culture. And one of the issues that we're running into in the North American church is that young people are leaving the church. And when these uh, young people who have left the church are interviewed, it's not even primarily because they don't believe what the church is teaching. A lot of times it's because they don't believe that the church believes what the church is teaching. Because when we look at the teaching of Jesus, we see that the greatest command is love and that everything else needs to flow from love. And what people are observing sometimes in in the church is that we're operating in ways that can, yes, draw a crowd, that can raise funds, that can build buildings. And it's not always characterized 
by love. That sometimes people who are a part of a church, people who claim the name of Jesus, use the same tools used by the world in order to gain and keep power, control, finances, in order to justify themselves, in order to feel like they have meaning in their lives. We can do a lot in a church without really living out what we're teaching. Today's key idea, this is going to be a two-parter. This week and next week, there is no excuse for good ministry to be accomplished with bad character, especially a lack of love. Before we read from God's Word, let's, uh, let's pray together. God, uh, we, we do pray that our minds would be open to hear from you, that it wouldn't just be about what you've taught me. Uh, we trust and believe that you are going to teach people this morning, that you are going to lead us into uh, uh, obedience that will be transformational. We thank you for caring enough about us to transform us for your glory and your purposes and for our own good. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, our small groups are going to uh, are, are going to recognize this because it was part of our small group discussion last week. And by the way, uh, small groups have had a uh, a busy weekend. A couple of them have. Um, Jacqueline just shared with me this morning that she moved and um, and she had people from from the church, not just her small group, uh, a bunch of people show up and and really. Uh, were a uh, a witness to her husband of what it looks like when people love and care for each other. So thank you, everybody who got involved in that. We had a small group that responded to a call in Rothschild. There was a uh, an, an older woman who uh, had broken ribs. She contacted the village of Rothschild. The village of Rothschild contacted us. And, uh, and, and we responded by helping with some, uh, some, some leaf removal. But more than that, uh, we, we had someone in our small group made pumpkin bars to, to bring as a blessing to her. We prayed together before the project. Uh, we had someone who uh, just had an ongoing conversation uh, with, this, um, with this person who we were serving. And, and we really think that um, this is going to open the door to a continued relationship. Like this might be a household we could serve in backyard missions and um, just really expressing the love of Christ to someone more than just moving leaves. So thank you all for that. First Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is Paul the apostle. He's calling for stronger character in this passage. And I want us to listen for that because change is inevitable. Transformation is intentional. And there's some intentional transformation that Paul is trying to work here for God's glory. So he says, when one of you has a dispute with another believer, okay, so he's 
talking to people within a, a gathering, a group like this. He says, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? The Greek here literally is God's holy people. That's how he would refer to you, by the way. If you're someone who's heard the good news of Jesus and, and you've said, uh, I believe, I believe that he died on the cross so my sins could be forgiven. I call him the Lord of my life today. Paul would refer to you as God's holy people or saints. Do you not feel like a saint? You know, maybe we don't think of ourselves like that. It gets even better in verse 2. Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world and since you are going to judge the world can't you decide even these little things among yourselves don't you realize that we will judge angels so you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life now we don't talk about this very much so he says don't you realize you're going to judge angels well but a lot of us don't we haven't realized that because we don't talk about it much let's take a little closer look. So God created people to have dominion on the earth, to rule, and to make the earth, all of creation, a reflection of his glory, to rule and to reflect. That's what we read in Genesis. That's what we read uh, uh, hints of that throughout scripture and instead we let created things rule us we conform to the world while we try by our own efforts to magnify our own glory now when we think of royalty we tend to think of people who live in luxury and they follow a weird lifestyle that i just don't get i didn't watch the weddings on tv or who squeeze taxes out of peasants in order to cover themselves with more luxury and comfort. And God's design for us is to have dominion over the earth that's not like what we have made royalty to be. To rule for him is an extension of his perfect love and beauty and peace and justice. Take that into the world. I've created you in my image. Now do this for the rest of creation. His intention is to restore us to that royal position. And he'll restore us to people who reflect his glory, what we could call a priesthood. Now, again, we need to kind of dial back what comes to our minds when we think of a priesthood, because often in, in, in our context, it's the, it's the Roman Catholic priest. To understand God's plan for every disciple of Jesus, though, we need to think of the role of a priest, not the Roman Catholic definition of who a priest is, not the old uh, Hebrew definition of what a priest is. Think of a priest as a mediator between heaven and and earth. If you're a disciple of Jesus, he has called you to be a priest. Okay, I know, like, 
this, it's, it takes a little bit to wrap our minds around this. Essentially, though, we are agents of his love in the world. We lead all of creation in worshiping him by reflecting his glory. That's what we do as a priesthood. That's who we were created to be. And despite the many ways that we fail at that, that's God's intention for us to be royal priests. To practice now because that's who we'll be for eternity. To rule and reflect. It's initiated in Genesis. It's restored by Jesus and completed in Revelation we look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. It says, He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. And we also see Peter appealing to the group identity of gathered disciples. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But you're not like that. You're not like people who stumble because they disobey God's word. No, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. You are royal priests. So this understanding of God's overarching plan for humanity is what Paul is referring to. There will be a time in the future where you will be royalty, where you will be a priesthood, where judgment of the world, of all of creation, you'll be involved in that process. So Paul's appealing to the group identity of the gathered disciples in Corinth. Essentially saying, come on guys, we are capable of judging disputes with the wisdom God gave us. We're not going to abdicate that responsibility to courts that don't even acknowledge Jesus as the king of kings. What are we doing? Verse 4, he says, if you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges? who are not respected by the church. And then in verse 5, this is what I really want us to key in on, because we could walk away from this and go, oh, okay, we're not supposed to have lawsuits. Got it. You know, add another rule to what it means to be a Christian. This isn't about adding rules. It's about character transformation. And here's what Paul says in verse 5. He says, I am saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? This is what I really want us to grab onto. Paul is saying this to shame them. What we see is Paul is using uh, uh, their group identity, what God has created them to be, and the gap between who they were created to be, and how they're living now. And he's pointing out that gap. Not to beat them down, to invite them up. 
And this he's calling shame, that gap. I want you to feel the difference between who you were called to be and who you're being now so that you live up to who you were called to be. Now, sometimes we hear that word shame and uh, we get a real negative feeling about it because people weaponize shame in order to have power over other people, in order to make themselves feel better. Maybe you've heard phrases or used phrases like, you are disgusting. How could you? You will never amount to anything. You're hopeless. You're such an idiot. Sometimes people use them to manipulate other people. Shame statements. You're, you're lucky to have me because no one, else, uh, no one else could love you. You would never make it without me. Sometimes shame is as simple as uh, uh, joking or sarcasm that causes other people to feel less than so that we can feel better about ourselves. And we use it and think that we're being funny and we're really weaponizing shame. We're really not speaking the truth in love. What part of sarcasm is speaking the truth in love? So yeah, there is toxic shame that we can be involved in. And what Paul is doing is pointing out this gap. And he's trying to use healthy shame. Because toxic shame is always about holding someone down. Healthy shame is something that we can process into greater joy and connectedness. I experienced this kind of shame last Sunday. Um, if you're here, you heard me teach about biblical communication guidelines and how uh, we're uh, people who don't gossip and slander. We use our words to encourage others, uh, to lift people up. And then that evening... Um, had uh, Preston's family over and had a situation that uh, I was feeling some frustration about and said some negative things about someone involved in that situation. And at one point I said, I hope I'm not breaking all the biblical guidelines that I just taught about this morning. And rather than excusing me, because everyone in the room had been a part of that teaching, Preston actually said, well, you, since you've been talking, I actually have broken my own I will statement two different times. So I don't know what his I will statement was. It caused me, though, not to be able to justify myself and the way I was talking. Instead, I felt shame. I felt a conviction about not remembering who I am in Christ and how a disciple of Jesus uses their words to shine a light, not to generate heat. And that evening, I thought about 
what can I do to make this right? So the next morning, I put together a list of positive things about the person I had talked negatively about. I sent that list along with an apology to everyone who was in the room the night before. By having people around me who are committed to biblical communication guidelines, I was able to do some retraining of my brain. Rather than just following my old patterns and having people say to me, oh, whatever, that's okay, I had people who reminded me, actually, that's not who we are. My brain doesn't want to feel shame. So shame became the pathway to addressing my character and moving towards greater joy and connectedness. So I hope you're seeing how important these concepts are for character development and inside-out transformation. When it comes to our character, we're talking about patterns and pathways and processes in our brains that happen before we even formulate a conscious thought. Learning more information is not going to touch your character. We can even change our outward behavior and still be faking inward transformation. We read in scripture, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We hear God saying, I don't want any more of your sacrifices. What I want is justice and mercy. It's when we experience joy from God's face shining on us and the faces of his people welcoming us that our minds then open up to transformation. It's when we fail and find that those faces are still there, encouraging us, loving unconditionally, that our minds start making new pathways in order to preserve and strengthen the connection to that group. And when we see the gap between the identity of the group versus the patterns we've been following, we experience shame and our minds form new pathways. I'm saying this to shame you, Paul said. Isn't there anyone in all the church who's wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer, the Greek literally brother, One brother sues another right in front of unbelievers. You see how Paul is appealing to their group identity? Remember, you're brothers. Verse 7, even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers, your brothers. We're people who are capable of judging disputes between each other with the wisdom God gives us. We are not a people who give that responsibility to someone who doesn't even honor Jesus as king. He says, for the church to have the character of Christ, it's better that you let someone within the church take advantage of you in a way. Now, I'm not, people are going to take this and go like, uh, well, we're covering up uh, misdeeds and, and abuses. That's not what Paul is talking about here. 
He's talking about overlooking minor offenses. He's talking about preserving relationship rather than asserting how right you are in a situation. It's a way of thinking and acting that doesn't occur to us naturally. It's not based on our experience. It's not the way the world taught us to operate. It's a new way to be human, an intentional transformation to become more like Christ so that we're practicing now for our eternal identity. We will rule with the character of Christ and reflect God's glory back to him. Now, this is where caution flags start to go up. Um, I, over the summer, as I was preparing for this series, I actually read uh, this, this book, After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters, by N.T. Wright. And I was excited. I went, went for a walk with my sister. She was in town, and, uh, and, and she has actually met... Uh, N.T. Wright in in her various ministries, and and so I was excited to tell her what I was learning from uh, from this book, and um, he talks a lot in here about this identity of being, uh, of ruling and, and reflecting, of being a kingdom of priests, and instead of saying, wow, that's really exciting, she looked really worried and said, you need to be very careful if you're going to teach that because people have a tendency to take advantage. There are people who would hear, you are royalty, and would get our worldly image of what that means and figure out ways to justify themselves lording their royalty over other people. Well, I'm one of God's people. So that's going to affect how I treat people who are not God's people. I'm royalty, so uh, anyone who's not royalty, they're peasants. Like, you can see how that could happen. If you say, well, I'm, I'm a priest, I have that kind of relationship with God. I can be uh, an intermediary between heaven and earth. So when I say something, I can start it with, um, God told me to tell you. Or this is what God says. And it, uh, it can become something that's less about love and expressing God's glory. And it can become more about power, control manipulation. So she was very, she said, she said, be very careful. (laughs) And indeed, we all, to some extent, wrestle against an inward gravity to think about and serve ourselves. I want to address, and we're just going to begin addressing it now. We'll, we'll get more into it next week. There are some people who don't wrestle with being self-centered. They have fully given into it. They see other people not as beautifully created in the image of God, but 
as a means to accomplish their goals or as a barrier. They wonder, is this person for me or against me? Instead of wondering, what's this person's story? What are their goals? What are their fears? Instead of welcoming correction, they take any critique or criticism as an attack. Anyone who doesn't fully agree with them is treated as an enemy to conquer by any means necessary. And when they experience consequences for their own behavior, they justify themselves. They claim to be the victim. And they know how to say and do the right things to keep people from walking out on them, even though they don't really care about those people. These behaviors are what psychologists would call narcissistic. Everyone wrestles with them to some extent, and there are some people who don't even wrestle. They just give themselves over to that mode of operating. They don't know any other way to be. Someone who primarily operates this way has a shame problem. They're not able to process shame as a pathway to greater joy and connection. If I hadn't caught myself last Sunday evening and called out my own failure to follow biblical communication guidelines, anyone in that room could have pulled me aside at an appropriate time and said something like, you know I love you, right? It seems like you forgot who you were for a moment back there. Would you be open to me reminding you who we are? Right. We avoid all gossip and slander, only speaking in a way that encourages or builds others up. That's who I want to be. And I let myself get caught up in old patterns of behavior. To have someone let me feel a moment of shame that lovingly leads to restoration is a relief to me. Some people, though, are absolutely shame intolerant. They will not receive correction. Here's how the writer of Proverbs put it. Proverbs 9 Verses 7 and 8, anyone who rebukes a mocker will get an insult in return. Anyone who corrects the wicked will get hurt. So don't bother correcting mockers. They will only hate you, but correct the wise and they will love you. So what can the church do about narcissism? First of all, we need to recognize toxic shame and not give into it because toxic shame is the narcissist's way to control. We need to recognize toxic shame, not give into it. A healthy test is to consider whether someone is speaking to you and treating you in a way that is rooted in love. Again, we're going to learn more about this next week. Um, in addition to not giving in to toxic shame. Since narcissists are unable to humble themselves to receive correction, we have to model it for them. 
they have to see loving correction being received and flawed people being restored. Seeing these patterns modeled and explained provides compelling evidence to their brain that there may be something worthwhile in this different pattern. Just teaching it isn't going to work. It has to be modeled. We also need to lose our appetite for self-justification. We need to be so afraid, or we I'm sorry, we tend to be so afraid of feeling shame that we spend all kinds of energy convincing ourselves and others that we're okay, especially when we're not. 1 John 1.8, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling. Who are we fooling? Ourselves. We're lying to ourselves and not living in the truth. We can and must admit that we struggle with sinful patterns. Even though we're forgiven by God, we're made right with him through the blood of Jesus. We have patterns that we're carrying from our past. We have ways that we're conforming to the world. We have to admit it. And we're all working together to learn new patterns that are consistent with the new life we've been given in Christ. And self-justification only slows down the process. Unfortunately, a lot lot of what uh, makes the news about the church is when big, successful ministries fall apart because of character flaws in high-profile leaders. How did that happen? Well, we created a system that celebrates ministry success as something that grows fast and large without taking care to cultivate Christ-like character. We're saying things are going to be different. Let's agree right now that there is no excuse for good ministry to be accomplished with bad character, especially a lack of love. And we're going to pick up on that point next week. Right now, we're shifting into a time of reflection and self-examination. In the same letter where Paul wrote about lawsuits, he used a dose of healthy shame to address a problem that the gathered disciples in Corinth were having with the Lord's Supper. Communion at that time was more than just a bite of bread and a little bit of uh, a juice or wine in a cup. It was a whole meal. And here's how Paul outlined the problem in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. He said, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Verse 22, what? (laughs) Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. And he goes on to explain the purpose of the meal is to remember Christ and to honor him. And to do that, we need to slow down and examine ourselves. So we see Paul again using healthy shame to say, slow down, examine yourself. Remember who you are. So we're going to take time to reflect right now. 
consider what is God teaching you today and what are you willing to do about it? Write something down during this time. So we're going to give time of reflection. Examine your heart. What does God want to do inside of you? And then we'll reconnect and share communion together. So take these next few minutes to quietly reflect. Paul the Apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you're a disciple of Jesus, um, then, then this is for you. If, uh, if not, we're not trying to make anybody go through religious patterns that, um, that, that, that don't mean anything to them. So uh, there's, there is no shame in not participating in, um, in, in communion. If that's not where you are right now, that's fine. For those of you um, who acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior who gave his body for you, 
together. Let's give thanks uh, for this bread, for the body of Christ given for us as we remember him together. Paul continues in the same way. He took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me for as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's look forward to him coming again as we remember what he did to bring us into his kingdom. Let's pray. God, it's not not enough. We are not interested in honoring you with our lips while our hearts are far from you. We're not interested in going through religious motions and neglecting justice and mercy and love. So God, we thank you that you've given us uh, everything we need in order to experience real transformation. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your word that instructs us and pray that we would live it out this week for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I encourage you, if you're part of the chat, share uh, in, in, the, in the chat um, what God is teaching you and what you're willing to do about it. Let that be an encouragement to us. And uh, in this room, we're going to take a few minutes and at your table, have a conversation about what God is teaching you and what you're willing to do about it. And if you uh, have been a part of New Day over the last few weeks and you had an I will statement, that became an I did statement, celebrate that too. Uh, let people know that, uh, that, that God is changing your patterns and uh, celebrate that together. So go ahead and have that conversation. Put your, uh, your uh, contribution into the chat and we'll catch up with you next week as we continue learning about character in the church.